Parshat Nitzavim. We don't often have just Nitzavim. It's most often Nitzavim Vayelech, which itself, even as the double parasha is one of the shortest parashat there is, Nitzavim is so fast, if you blink, you'll miss it. You're going to have extra time to learn Torah tomorrow morning, uh, Shabbos morning, because Chris Torah is so fast. It's a very powerful parasha. Tem Nitzavim Ayom Kuchem. You're all here. You made it. You got through whatever you got through. You got out of Egypt. You got through 40 years in the desert. We're on the edge of the Jordan River. Moshe Rabbeinu is a day away from leaving this world. The Jewish people are about to enter Israel, the fulfillment of hundreds of years of dreaming. Right? A lot of interesting things in this week's parsha. We're only going to mention one of them. There was a woman who came to speak at a writer, I don't know, three, four years ago. She came a couple of years, and unfortunately she's older now. She can't uh, think if, I hope she's still alive and well. She's a Holocaust survivor. And she told us part of her story. She was eight years old in 1938. She was born in 1930. And one night her parents went out somewhere. Now, this was after the Anschluss. This was already the Germans had taken over Austria. It was very dangerous to be a Jew. Jews were getting picked up all the time, taken to Gestapo headquarters and disappearing. And they knew that any Jewish male was in danger. At that time, they were starting with the men. So they had a deal with the babysitter and the kids. If the Gestapo showed up, Police showed up. Sometimes they would just show up. Parents wouldn't be there. They'd sit and wait in the living room. Right? When they left, they turned the lights out in the living room. And the window, third floor, looked out on the street. If when they came home, the lights were on, they would know the Gestapo was there. So they went out, whatever they were, I don't know. And they came back a few hours later, and they looked up, and the light was on. So they realized something's wrong. And they were nervous. So the mother said, I'll go up and see what's going on. And if I don't open up the window and call you out, then you know that something's wrong. Now, you have to understand, this is 1938. They don't know what's around the corner. They still think that this is just, you know, just like happened during World War I and during the pogroms in, in Russia. And this is, things are bad. There's anti-Semitism. It doesn't even occur to them what's coming. So the safest thing, so that the husband won't get taken off, maybe just like in Russia, taken off to the army or who knows what, he sees that his wife isn't opening the window. He realizes something's wrong. So he goes into hiding. They never saw him again. After the war, they found out that he was eventually picked up by chance in a roundup in a neighborhood at night. He was taken to the Stutthof concentration camp. When, Heinrich, when Reinhard Heydrich was assassinated, that's a whole story with the partisans, the Nazis basically lined up all the prisoners in all their camps in Germany and Austria. They put them in lines. There's actually a famous scene in Schindler's List that, that sort of shows this happening. And basically every 10th man was put to death. He happened to be the 10th in his line. Never saw him again. Sometime later, they were told, the mother and her children, including Marlite Wendell, who at the time was eight and a half years old, that they have to come down to the police station and they have questions about their papers. And the Gestapo officers who showed up in their apartment, right, said, you don't have to take anything with you. We're just, you're just coming down for some routine questioning. You'll be black later this evening. Now, a policeman says that. You're terrified, but you have no reason to assume anything different. 
They have no reason to take you. There's nothing they're going to gain by taking you with little children. So they go down to the police headquarters to settle up the papers. That was the last time they ever saw their house. They ended up in a ghetto, in a camp, in a work camp, and eventually in Auschwitz. Um, she actually survived Auschwitz with her mother and one of her sisters. They have three consecutive numbers. The stories that she told, the miracles that they went through is just way too much for this evening and mind-boggling. But the end of this, this, this presentation that she shared with us on Yom HaShoah, so she opened up the floor to questions, and one of the boys asked her, like, when you look back, right, do you have any, like, you know, if you could go back, if you, what? And she says to this boy, she says, you have to understand, I was eight years old. And we left the house, and we never came back. And when I survived the war, we went back looking for people. It was very quickly apparent there was no home for us anymore in Austria. Somebody had taken over their house. Right? It was very clear how dangerous it would be for them to make a claim in post-Holocaust Austria to their house. And they finally got away and they eventually went to America and eventually they ended up in Israel. And she said she left her room with all her toys and she remembers this doll that was her favorite doll. And when they were going out the door, she had asked her mommy, can she go get her doll? But the Gestapo were there and the mother said, just come. And if she could only go back and get this doll, can you ever go back? Can you ever go back? What is this parsha about? This is Perak Lamed, Perak Chavtet. Perak Chavchet is perhaps the most difficult Perak that was Parsha Kitavo in the entire Torah. To me, Perak Chavchet speaks of the Holocaust. Maybe sometime I'll give you a shir and I'll tell you why I think that is. Very difficult psukim. Vaita mimashesh batzorayim kasher yimashesh ha'iver ba'afela you will grope in the darkness. If you don't listen, then you don't follow Hashem's ways and all these curses come upon you. Putting aside the theological questions that that raises, you will grope around in the noonday sun like a blind man gropes in the darkness. Right? Why does it say, Kasher like a blind man gropes in the darkness? If you're blind, you grope in the daylight, not just in the darkness. The Malbim explains, if you're blind and you're in the light, everybody else can see, so they can help you. But if you're a blind man groping in the darkness, nobody else sees either. They don't see you're groping. No one can help you. Ein la'el yadecha. You will long to be saved all day. Your carcasses will be eaten by the birds. You go to Yad Vashem, and there's a, there's a, a piece there, a, 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 a display on the Warsaw Ghetto. And when we go there on Yom HaShoah, I'm going to show you, they, they brought actual stones, cobblestones in the Warsaw Ghetto. So that even if you don't get to Poland this year, you'll be able to stand on the stones that Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto died on. There's a, there's a, there's a sanctity to those stones. And they have this photo montage. And there's one photo there of uh, a woman. And she has stockings on, which means she must have been well-to-do because they're in the ghetto. And she has her arm sort of linked to the arm of a Jewish capo, a policeman. Right? And they're walking laughing. 
And it looks like a regular scene where two people are just walking through town. Until you look carefully at the picture and realize there are dead bodies lying over the street. And nobody cares. No one will come to your salvation. And that's Perak Havchet. It is the most difficult Perak in the Torah. The Chazan reads it in a lower voice, the Balkore, because, because it's painful. Right? And then you get to Parshinit Seven. You're still standing. You're here. We don't, as much as we try, and we need to try, we can't really appreciate what a nice niggle it is that we're here. That the Jewish people survived all these things. It's just unbelievable. And Perak Lamed, which is the continuation of Perak Havchet, after all this, all these painful, difficult, the diseases that come from starvation and overcrowding and the when all these things will come to pass, the blessings and the curses, and you will return. Amongst all the nations, that Hashem cast you away from the farthest corners of the earth. You will come home. And Hashem will return your remnant. And Hashem will gather you in from amongst all the nations where you've been exiled. I'll tell you an interesting thing. There's a, um, there's a Medrash. No, sorry, it's a Zohar. Zohar has the Arba'im Bishmon of the 48 Simanei Gula. Whatever, it's an interesting discussion. All these things that will occur in Yemot HaMashiach in the time preceding the redemption. Some of them we don't even understand. Like the Mepharshim aren't clear. Like for example, it says that the day will come and the Jews will come to our Israel. Alma Diktanya, the world will become small. And they don't know exactly what that means. We know exactly what it means. Right? Giving a shear here, it's being recorded. And people in Brazil are going to listen to this shear. People in Russia are going to listen to this. It's unbelievable. You can get on a screen and you can give shiurim to Jews all over the world. The world is smaller. Right? And there are all sorts of similarities. One of them is that the lost tribes will begin to return. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. Vendor says that when the lost tribes begin to return, and it's machlokas whether they will return, the Rambam says they will. I'm with the Rambam on this one. Not that he needs my approbation. The Vendor says, who will be the first of the lost tribes? Now remember... There are three tribes that survived. Yehuda, Binyamin, and Levi. But the ten tribes were lost. They were exiled by Sancherev, by Saragon, the Assyrian exile, 722 before the Common Era, supposedly, perhaps, never to return. Okay. But if they do come back, who will come back first? Anybody know? Do you know why the Medrash says Shevet Dan will be the first one to come back? Because Shevet Dan, according to the Medrash, well, the Pesukim, shot in the Torah, Shevet Dan, the tribe of Dan, was the last in the order of the tribes. Okay, when the tribes, right, there were, there were four sides to the Machaneh. The Mishkan was in the middle. Around them, the Machaneh Leviah, the Kohenim and the Leviim. And around them, three in the front, three on the side, three on the side, three in the back. Right, Yehuda led the way. Then the group that went with Reuven, right, there was an order. Who was the last tribe? Shevet Dan. Now, because Shevet Dan was the last tribe to march. What was their special mitzvah? They would always find the things they got left behind. When they got to the next encampment, 
they would return all the lost objects. In the merit of the fact that they returned the lost objects, they will be the first lost object to return. Rav Avadja Yosef has a tshuva when Ethiopians started to come back from Ethiopia. And he says in his tshuva, and he has a whole long discussion about why he believes this to be so. The reason he believed that, that the Ethiopians only needed Giyur Lechumra, they didn't really need Giyur, was because they were the lost tribe of Dan. There's a lot going on in this question. Now I'll tell you another story. Okay? Many, many years ago, when I was first married, I um, had the privilege of teaching in a place called Machon Meir. Okay. And this is an Israeli yeshiva with many balay tshuva, many people who were trying to come back with very little background. And they had a program for a group called the B'nai Menashe. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. The B'nai Menashe are a group uh, of people who mostly live in the area in the mountains of Nepal. They have a tradition that goes back at least 600 years. A Sefer Torah that they had that was stolen by the Chinese and all sorts of crazy stories. And Minhagim, now they were cut off from the Jewish world for centuries. They have many of the same customs we have. They have Pesach, they have Sukkot, they have Matzah, they have Elchosnida, all sorts of things. And they have a tradition that they're a lost tribe of Menashe. Now, the Rabbanut Paskin Lalacha that they have to have Giyur, because it wasn't an unbroken chain. But there are many Mepharshim and Gdolim who believe that they're a lost tribe of Menashe. Okay. So they asked me while I was there, would I be willing to give them Shirim? They speak, most of them speak English. What an unbelievable schus to teach Jews who may well be from the lost tribe of Menashe. That's just unbelievable. Right? So, so I agreed to give them shirim, and I got close to some of them. And one night they said they were doing a teal. Would I be interested in going? I said, doing a teal? What are you doing a teal? They're taking a bus. They're going to Shechem. I said, that sounds interesting. Now, this is like after the first intifada. Jews didn't go into Shechem anymore. So I feel there's a chance. I hadn't been to Shechem in years. Last time I was in Shechem, I wasn't. So we went to Shechem. You want to guess where we went? We went to the kever of Yosef. Why did they want to go to the grave of Yosef? Because they were the lost tribe of Manasseh. Now, in 2,000 years, the tribe of Manasseh had not been privileged to visit the grave of Yosef. For me, it was interesting. You know, go say some Tehillim. It was unbelievable. These guys started crying. They threw themselves on the cover. They had a tradition that one day they would yet come home to their ancestor Yosef to pray at his kever, and I was watching the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old dream. V'shav v'kibetzcha. Mikol amim asher v'tzcha Hashem v'lakech Hashem. One day, Hashem will bring you home. Right? Now, this is interesting. How do you do this? We've been talking all week about tshuva as individuals. This is tshuva on a national level. How does tshuva on a national level happen? So it's interesting. What is the concept of hate? What is the consequence of doing a hate? Okay? You understand my question? What's the consequence of hate? Very interesting. If I want to understand how something works in Judaism, what I need to do is find the first place it appears. Okay? For example, the Gemara says, Haro'et tet bechalom. If you see the letter Tet in a dream, we spoke about this once, Yetzapelatov, assume good is coming your way. So the Vilna Gaon asks, why should I assume good is coming your way? They say, well, because if you see the letter Tet, Tov starts with the letter Tet. So the Vilna Gaon says, well, so does Tuma and Trefa. There's lots of words that start with Tet. 
So the Vilna Gaon explains, but the first time you find the letter Tet is the word Tov, which means the paradigm of Tov, the ideal, is the first time you see it. Anytime I can find where something first happens, that's the paradigm of how it's supposed to work. So what's the first chet? Adam and Chava. What's the consequence of the chet of Adam and Chava? If I had to pick a word, what's the consequence of chet Adam and Chava? Exile is very good. Before exile? What's the first thing that happens after they eat from the fruit? Vayishmau et kol Hashem elokim mitalech bagan l'rochayim. They hear the sound of God walking. It's a powerful pasuk. Chassidus has a field day with that pasuk. If you hear somebody walking, it means you're not with them. They become distant. They're in Ganeidim with Hashem. What do you hear from a distance? So Hashem finds them, and He says to 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 to, to Adam Rishon, Ayeka, where are you? The consequence of chait is you become distant. You become distant. That's what happens. Look at what happens with Cain. Cain kills Hevel. What's the consequence of his mistake? Navinati Abarat, you're gonna wander, you're gonna be distant. Exile is the consequence, it's not a punishment. It's the consequence of the mistakes that we made. How do we know when we're starting to fulfill, not individual, but national chuva? because we're undoing the consequence of 2,000 years of mistake. And what is the ultimate undoing of the consequence of chait, which is distance and exile, is coming home. Now that's true on a national level, and it's true on an individual level, right? Tshuva, if it's succeeding, has to produce closeness. It has to bring me back. You know, you messed up with your, your, your friend. You know, you, you I don't know, you, you you like this girl, it was his girlfriend, you looked at her the wrong way, she fell for you, you broke this guy's heart, he's devastated, he doesn't want to talk to you. You made a mistake. By the way, the mistake might not be the girl, the mistake might be you found, you didn't find a way to do it so that, it, so that, so that you could be friends. And it bothers you. You felt like you did something wrong, you regret it. You want to fix it, you want the future to be different. How will you know that it's working and you become closer? When you can take him out for a cup of coffee and you can give a hug. What is the real goal of tshuva? We've been talking about I want to get back to become the person I could always be. The real goal of tshuva is I want to become close again. Close to what? Close to who? Close to Akash I want to rediscover who I really am. I want to get back in touch with myself on a whole different level. That's what tshuva is. That's what this pasuk is. Atem nitzavim, you're standing. You gotta take a pause. Where am I? Which direction am I headed to? What was the distance I experienced? How do I undo that and how do I get close? Now, there are a lot of questions that are left in this topic. I'm gonna skip them, because it's late. But I will tell you one last thing. What makes a person happy in this world? We spoke about this, some of us in the Tefillah class. Makes you happy in this world is tapping into who you're really meant to be. Figuring out what your purpose is. Figuring out what Hashem wants of you. You know? What makes you unhappy? Trying to change who you really are. You figure out who you're really meant to be, you tap into who you really are, that brings you joy. That brings you meaning. People who are unhappy, they're living a life that isn't real. 
They're not living up to who they really are. You know? And that's this last weekend. That's these few days left in this year. Who do I really want to be? How do I get back to who I really want to be? We are living in incredible times. They wrote about this for thousands of years, and we're living it. The lost tribes of Amisrael are coming home. The world is getting small. You can walk in the streets, and you can hear Jews talking Hebrew again. There's a Jewish army. It's a Jewish government. It's unbelievable what we're going through now. We're coming home. We're fixing this anomaly of having been distant. And now the question is, do we join them? Is it just a nation, or do we become part of them? Do I get a little closer? That's the challenge of these last few days of the year as we enter into Rosh Hashanah. There is a lot more to say on this topic, but I'm going to start, stop here. I want to really wish you all the most wonderful Shabbos.